I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to the Trafe podcast. Hello, Trafiacs, Trafianians, Trafesters. <laughs> uh, these are definitely not canon. Not canon, and I'm embarrassed that I just made a Mark Maron reference. Please disregard everyone listening. But we are back. Uh, this is the first episode of our new monthly release schedule. David speaks full truths, not partial truths. Um, I'm still getting over the fact that I made a reference to a terrible podcast. It's okay. I forgive you, Sam. All right. Well, it's he, he's good at having conversations. I don't agree with him. To be honest, it. it's more about forgiving myself. Yeah. Um, what do we do on this podcast, Sam? If I found myself in the, uh, the Arizona desert, my mind wiped of all my memories sitting in a diner, much like uh, Elijah Snow in the uh, Wildstorm Planetary comics, uh, what, what, what do I need to know about this podcast? So I'm very happy that you asked that question. Well, I'm glad. On this show, the Trafe Podcast, we have conversations that we think are happening in a problematic way in Jewish communities or that should be happening in Jewish communities around North America. Well, thanks. Thanks for that primer. Anytime. Uh, so before we talk about anything else, we should do a little bit of housekeeping. Non-content related matters that we have to talk about. Okay, I'm going to stick to housekeeping for now. <laughs> um, so what, what, do we, what do people need to know from the Trafe Podcast right now, Sam? We actually have a whole lot of things going on principal among them is a series of workshops that we are giving in the Pacific Northwest starting on March 1st I believe running till March 8th Portland Olympia Seattle Bellingham and Vancouver if you like more information about any of those dates you can check them out on facebook.com or on our website trafepodcast.com where there's a section for workshops We've talked about this on previous shows, but the workshop that we're giving is about naming and deconstructing the framework that most of us are currently using to understand anti-Semitism in the U.S. and Canada. And again, if you, if you go to that part of the website, it'll have the description of the workshop as well. And if you're bored of hearing us talk about that workshop, A, we're sorry, but B, it's almost done. So moving right along, it's uh, been a while since our last episode, so lots happened in the world principal among them, as uh, you are fond of saying, Sam, uh, is that you're a one year older. Uh, yes, I am one year, one years older. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. How was your birthday? Uh, I was pretty positive all around. I think I had my first birthday party in a while. Yeah, I've never been to a birthday party for you before. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. So how old are you now? Uh, I turned 30. Both of us have crossed the threshold out of youth culture. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was out of youth culture a long time ago. David, I legitimately don't know what we were talking about before this tangent. Well, what we were talking about was what the Trafe podcast is. Correct. Um, one, one decision we made when we started the show is that we are going to focus on questions sort of pertaining to the Jewish left in the U.S. and Canada because we didn't really see that being engaged with. You're uh, preaching to the choir right now. Um, but something that we decided not to focus on as explicitly on the show was Palestine, because there are plenty of other media outlets that do this very well. Like the Electronic Intifada now has a podcast. You can go to mondoweiss.com for even like a Jewish take on this stuff. Which isn't to say that we don't talk about the role that institutional Jewish organizations play in upholding colonialism in Palestine. We, we do that fairly often. But in the last few months, there's so much happening uh, in Palestine that we wanted to kind of acknowledge and center some of those things right now. And so instead of just being another voice weighing in on, on one or another recent development, we thought that we could focus on an anniversary that recently passed at the end of December, which is the 30th anniversary of the first Intifada. And we were hoping that by looking back and talking about this history, we could maybe give a bit more context for what we're seeing happening today. There's been so much that has gone on in the last couple of months that we can't just sit here and list them all. But there are some pretty robust campaigns going on in North America in support of the Tamimi family. And a bunch of great organizations are mobilizing around that. So we'll put some links in the show notes to campaigns and organizing that is going on right now. And if you don't know about local organizing, hopefully you can connect from there. Yeah, this is a great time to tap in. But all that said, Sam... Uh, who do we have on the show today? We have a pre-recorded conversation with Mezna Cato. Uh, pulling away the curtain of how we do the podcast. Yes, the curtain that no one believes is actually there. Anyways, I'm getting back to the issue at hand. We spoke with Mezna Cato, who is based in the UK at the moment and is a Palestinian activist and academic and all-around incredible human who talked to us about the history and legacy of the First Intifada. 
Yeah, Mesna's uh, academic work focuses on the history of Palestinian educational systems. Um, she's also written about the Palestinian Solidarity Movement in the U.S. and Canada. And she was actually in Palestine as a child during the First Intifada. And so we are both really looking forward to speaking with her and, and looking back on the First Intifada now 30 years later. Without further ado, this is your episode of Trafe for the 8th of Adar 5778. So my name is Mesna Cato. I'm a junior research fellow at the University of Cambridge, currently writing a book on the history of education for Palestinians after the 1948 war. Well, Mesna, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So uh, the reason that we wanted to talk today is because we, we recently passed the 30th anniversary of the First Intifada. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think the history of the First Intifada is not actually widely understood or sometimes even known by a lot of young activists today in the U.S. and Canada. Right. And so to start this conversation, we were wondering if you could give a brief 101 for folks who are listening and, and how it began. So... Intifada means a shaking off, and it's generally historically been regarded as having begun on December 9th, 1987. And the reason it began initially was because of a traffic accident at a res checkpoint in Gaza that resulted in four deaths. This resulted in protests that then got carried over into the West Bank and then spread like wildfire. Within a few weeks, there were protests and marches and rallies all throughout the West Bank and Gaza in particular. And then by December 21st, 1987, was the first time when a general strike was declared throughout mandatory Palestine by Palestinians. And this resulted in an entire upheaval throughout the West Bank, Gaza, and in Israel, but then across the diaspora amongst Palestinians in Lebanon, Jordan, and elsewhere. And it wasn't a moment that was anticipated by most people. Palestinians had just emerged from an intense siege in Beirut and the Sabran Shatila massacres. And in, in Palestine itself, the Israelis were implementing a systemic settler plan of taking up more land, cordoning Palestinians off into smaller and smaller cantons. So 87 came as a bit of a surprise, but it also resulted in a kind of rapid, ad hoc, on the ground, locally organized mobilization of people, of resources by Palestinians in order to confront the occupation in its full breadth. So there were strikes, there were school closings, there was a refusal to pay taxes, there were all sorts of attempts by Palestinians during this period to really mobilize every single sector. There was no one who was not part of the first intifada, whoever you were. If you were a child, if you were an elder, if you were a worker, if you were a business owner. And it ends with the signing of the Oslo Agreements which are regarded not as having ended it, but have terminated it, or perhaps aborted it. And it was, you know, an unfortunate end to a incredible popular mobilization that is regarded by historians as a crucial turning point in Palestinian history. So before we get to the uh, sort of the legacy of the first Intifada and how it ended, uh, I want to talk a bit about what it looked like while it was happening and I'm really interested in talking more about the infrastructure of the first Intifada. Um, for mm-hmm. you know, for people listening who have never heard of the popular committees or have never heard of you know what it, what the Intifada looked like on the ground, can you describe some of what that looked like? First, there's some sort of misnomers that have to be understood. One is that it's the first Intifada is very often regarded as a kind of leaderless 
popular uprising. This is inaccurate. There was a leadership. It was called the Unified National Command of the Uprising. It was an underground leadership, and it was a leadership based in local towns, in the villages, in the camps, very often young men and women who coordinated work within their local environment and context, but then who were in touch with you know, more regional organizers and coordinators. And they were mostly, all these people were either people who were previously active within their political parties or some that had just emerged as a result of this mobilization. What this looked like, um, and I was a young person there during this time, was that every neighborhood, every town, every space had someone there that was sort of regarded as the address for thinking not necessarily leading or controlling, but thinking around what we can do to support the popular mobilization. This meant women had committees that worked around childcare, supporting women who were arrested. There was work around developing parallel schooling as a result of school closings. There were people who were distributing support amongst each other and a kind of solidarity food system. All of that was done at a kind of local level, but with a conscious idea that this is organized, that this is systemic, and that there is some sort of functional democratic structure to decision-making at that scale. And, but, but it was entirely underground. So very often you wouldn't know that someone was part of the unified command until he was uh, assassinated. And then it would be announced by his comrades at his funeral. So one one element I wanted to talk to you about, because you did your PhD in this area, is that during the Intifada, Palestinian education became completely illegal. Right. And I'm just wondering if you, you can talk a bit about what this meant and, and how people responded to these circumstances. Yeah, it was, it was one of the first things that you do. You target kind of the spaces in which young people organize, and then you target those institutions that you regard as enemies of pacification. So schools became a central mode by which to, as any state regards, to control a population. So by shutting them down, the Israelis were asserting a control over what they thought was uncontrollable young people, and at the same time, creating more difficulties for young people to gather, particularly at universities and colleges and secondary schools. What ended up happening was that Palestinians returned to the conditions in which they very clearly and are very able and capable of doing, which was organizing their own schooling. So you had schools under trees, in empty rooms, in living rooms, in any kind of open space. And there was an incredible camaraderie between professors and teachers and students and parents around coordinating and organizing education for their um, children. Now, this was for a few years the case where you had this kind of informal education that became formalized. However, by the end, a lot of parents were beginning to get nervous that quite a few years have now passed without formal education. Certification became a problem. Exams became a problem. Taking the yearly, there's something called taujihi, basically a general education certificate that you get at the end of your schooling that determines what kinds of places you can go to for university or trade school. And, and so that kind of uncertainty made a lot of parents nervous around the long-term, the long-term capacity of communities to continue to coordinate informal educational structures. The, the Intifada carried on for several years. Could you talk about what day-to-day life was like during that period for, for Palestinians living in, in different parts of that region? Yeah, I mean, it depended on where you were. But if you were in the West Bank and Gaza during this time, first, universities were closed for years on end. I think Buzet University for four years. Children weren't going to school for long stretches of time. If you owned a business or if you ran a restaurant or whatever you did, there could be a general strike or a regional strike. 
everything was dictated around two things. First, how you were going to support the Intifada, participate in this popular movement. And second, how the Israelis would respond. As you know, during this period, Yitzhak Rabin, who was the defense minister during this period, called for a breaking their bones policy, meaning that the Israeli army was tasked with completely crushing this uprising. This meant summary executions in broad daylight. This meant beating children. There's the famous image of the young boy who was caught by a few soldiers and beaten with a rock. These were the everyday kind of dangers of participating popularly in this movement. But there was also the sense of responsibility and a duty, collective duty, to do so. I remember you had this sense that when, for example, a jeep would enter into a town square or an area, you would distract them with banging pots outside of... We, I remember doing this banging pots outside of my window in order to distract the soldiers as they were chasing after young men who, in that like brief few seconds that the soldiers were distracted, would be able to escape capture. So there was a kind of intensity to the time. There was a sort of spirited joyfulness, a sense where we were all part of something bigger than ourselves. And even the danger that was there and ever-present and, and deeply violent emotionally and spiritually. But it was also fun. Um, there were jokes. We used to chant these like really kind of funny chants during marches. And um, young people would remember how so much of their formative life and what informed the rest of their life was spent sitting in the middle of the night with other young people figuring out what to do the next day. And those bonds lasted far beyond 1993, certainly. It was the high point of many people's lives in that way. I'm curious how you feel the repression during the first intifada compares to what we see today uh, by the Israeli government. Like how you think, whether whether you think there is tangible differences that are present. Mm-hmm. Some things are different. Some things are the same. Some things are worse um, in terms of different. You have to remember during this time between 87 and 93, there were a whole list of things that were prohibited for Palestinians to have, to use, to speak. You weren't allowed to hold a Palestinian flag. You were not allowed to raise a Palestinian flag. Newspapers were censored by the Israeli civil administration of the occupation. Meetings of more than three or four people that were unauthorized were not allowed. And if you refused to cooperate, if you persisted in organizing, it was only until 1989 that moderate torture, in quotes, was outlawed. So the conditions of incarceration were distinctly worse. There are entire stories of Palestinian prisoners describing torture positions, one called the Shabah, for example, where you were uh, forced to sit for often days in a child's chair that was tilted forward. Those conditions are slightly different than they are now. But other things are not. The bulldozing of homes, punishment through deportation, through permanent detention without a trial, all of the things that we've understood the occupation to hold. But the conditions in which the uprising emerged, I often think about, could the first intifada have happened if the conditions on the ground looked as they are now? And I'm not entirely sure. Partly, of course, because let's say we take out the the existence of the Palestinian Authority, but the almost near complete isolation of Palestinians in Gaza from those in the West Bank, the political fracturing that currently exists between Palestinian political parties, particularly Hamas and Fatah, the wall and the way that it's completely isolated Palestinians in the West Bank from those in Israel, the strength of the Palestinians in Jerusalem being whittled away by neoliberal economic and political policies, these conditions didn't exist in the same way then. The social structure of Palestinian society was yet still more cohesive than it is now. There weren't as many Palestinians in debt to banks as there are now. There wasn't a kind of 
land speculation and economic privatization and neoliberalization within society as there is now. And so strikes were easier to organize, refusal to pay taxes was easier to coordinate, and there was a solidarity economy that was supporting people to not fall sort of off the deep end um, economically. That doesn't exist now. And I think that that is reflected in the kind of political mobilization that exists at the moment, that is more fragmented, that flares up and then dies out, that is not as coordinated. Those are the kind of primary impediments that result in it seeming almost impossible for something like the first intifada to emerge under the current conditions. I found the point that you just made about neoliberalism very fascinating because an analysis of capitalism in anti-colonial struggles isn't always very present. And I guess I just want you to talk a little bit more about how you feel that neoliberalism and changing economy, obviously related to political shifts, has impacted resistance in Palestine from the 80s and until now. Right. I think what is important to understand is that when thinking about Palestine, what is often now happening is that people think around Palestine and not Palestinians. And this has meant that we have, in our thinking, in our political organizing, reproduced some of what the occupation aims to do, which is to fragment Palestinians, to think about Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza as separate from how and when we think about Palestinians in Israel, to not think about Palestinians in the diaspora at all, if ever. Of course, the conditions in these different places and environments are different and distinct and complicated, but that fragmentation and the way in which our speech acts and our political work reproduces them is also in some ways a danger that didn't exist in the same way in 1987. But in, in the West Bank and Gaza, you have this thing called the Palestinian Authority that has functioned in many ways to systematize the occupation, make it less advantageous for any Palestinian to speak up against it. And it's done in several ways. It's done by ways that neoliberalism works elsewhere, by tying people to debt, by building up infrastructures that support privatizing electricity, water, every sort of public infrastructural thing has either been privatized in coordination with the occupation or taken up by the occupation directly and also most significantly has been the rise of non-governmental organizations that after the intifada and particularly after the oslo there was a huge massive influx of donor cash and that donor cash came as all donor cash does with a lot of strings attached as to what is and what is not permissible support for the new Palestinian state. Some of them were, were actually popular committees that had to formalize themselves into NGOs that have transformed their language from one of resistance to occupation or colonialism or settler colonialism to one of human rights. So it's a discursive transformation that is also um, a material one. There is a lot of work that is written about these NGOs and about how we think around their role within Palestinian resistance and solidarity. That literature and that writing and that political strategizing tends to collapse the Palestinian body politic into sort of an, a classless structure that isn't nuanced and attentive to social and demographic transformation in ways that are necessary to truly understand, well, Okay, so you have this new neoliberalized economy, but how are Palestinians circumventing it? How are they thinking through it, working beyond it? How do we even read Palestinian society now? There's less of that, and there's certainly less of that within um, the world of Palestinian solidarity that is less attentive often to the particularities of Palestinian political and social life than it is to adjudicating the persistent violations of, of that life by Israel. So, so I also want to talk about the narrowing of the political landscape. Um, mm -hmm. The Oslo Accords are often written about and talked about as, as betraying this legacy of the Intifada, sort of destroying its infrastructure, delegitimizing the popular resistance. 
And I'm wondering maybe if you can bring us through that process of the end of the Intifada. Right. There's several things that end up happening at the end of Intifada. First, it was that it had been six years, and there was some degree of exhaustion. But second, that there was beginning to be a disconnect between different ideas of how this should end. What are the demands of this Intifada? This Intifada was happening in a larger context. The collapse of the Soviet Union, the 1991 Gulf War, when people started to kind of lose a little bit of the tension that the Intifada had captured. And that resulted in a feeling of, you know, we need to kind of cash in all that we've accrued through this political mobilization and work. And it resulted in the sort of capitulation of Oslo, but also understanding that that capitulation was happening at a moment when the Intifada itself was at a lower ebb. But in terms of inheritances of the first Intifada, I think it did several things. First, it showed Israel to be a bully when it had been regarded as a saintly state. And that opened up the capacity for Palestinians to speak in ways that they hadn't before. It gave the Palestinians a political repertoire of strategies, tactics that they were trying out and experimenting with that still remain. Next week will be the second anniversary of the teacher strike, which is and remains the largest sector strike in Palestinian history. Over 50,000 Palestinian teachers went on strike two years ago. And many of those teachers talk about the uh, influence of the Intifada on them as young people then, thinking of that kind of thing as possible and doable and useful as a tactic from which to make demands. You also see within it, the first Intifada, a linkage between the popular mobilization of the late 80s to earlier legacies of that particularly during the Palestinian Revolution in the 60s and 70s, and earlier in 1936, a revolt against British rule. So there was a, that sense of continuity of always re-emerging, surprising the occupier, surprising the colonizer with the capacity to regather and regroup despite the intense, intense defeat, despite the will of states to eradicate you. That remains. That, that sentiment remains. Part of the danger, too, though, that is now emerged is because there's such, you know, after the Oslo Accords, the curriculum was completely rewritten by the Palestinian Authority. And there isn't actually now in the Palestinian curriculum a coherent narrative of Palestinian history in any way. It's quite a scandalous curriculum for the K-12 age as well as university So before the Oslo, you were required to take a course in revolutionary history and in Palestinian theories of revolutionary practice. You're no longer required to do so as a result of the neoliberalization we talked about. So there is a disconnect of young people who actually don't themselves know the history of the First Intifada and the history of the repertoires that emerged there. And there's also a feeling of disconnect because so many of the leaders who weren't killed or assassinated or sent into exile or permanently broken as a result of being part of the Intifada have capitulated and become part of the new face of occupation, which is called the Palestinian Authority. What comes to mind, there's this article that you wrote, I think about five years ago now, for Jacobin Magazine, that I couldn't recommend highly enough for anybody listening. We'll We'll have a link in the show notes to this. But you sort of talk about the transition of Palestine organizing to a a more legalistic framework that that you identify as starting with Oslo. And and I was wondering if you could maybe describe this process and talk about its relationship to this revolutionary tradition. I think, I mean, one of the things that uh, Karim Rabia and I were thinking about in that article was about where does the claim for justice come from, particularly And also, what does it mean to be in solidarity with the Palestinians? And in what ways are you in solidarity? Like, what do you evoke when you want to evoke your solidarity with the Palestinians? And what we were worried about was that within the context of North America in particular, there was an intense focus 10 years ago and even five years ago on the question of human rights, 
Palestinians as bearers of rights that must be protected and, and supported. Now, while we think that this is entirely correct, of course, Palestinians have all of the rights that are adjudicated to any other group of people. The language of rights and the politics of human rights, the appeal to international law in this way, boxed Palestinians into a relationship with international regimes and the international order that could not countenance a descriptive of Israel as a settler colonial state, for example, could not countenance this idea that actually we want something called decolonization or we want a complete restructuring of the order of our world where the idea of a state can be reconsidered. Even Palestinian solidarity formations were beginning to think along these lines. It wasn't just NGOs and international organizations or the UN, but the solidarity movement to such a degree that very often the language of the solidarity movement wouldn't even be reflective of the way in which Palestinians themselves speak. And that was our main impetus for that article. And it was, it was, you know, it was an interesting also, it was interesting to see the responses to that article that were deeply troubled by it. People were furious, furious saying that we have to think of appealing to the law as a kind of strategy and part of a broader movement. And our response was that the problem is when the law overtakes the movement. There was an intense feeling that I was, you know, we were attacking the BDS movement or we were attacking this and that, mm. and not them understanding that actually this was an article directed to the solidarity movement in the United States and the ways in which it talks about Palestinians. Yeah. You know, how it organizes in solidarity. It's not a critique of, I mean, the BDS movement was very instrumental in this human rights discourse, but it's changing as well as a result of this article and many others similar to it. But it was trying to open up the capacity to think in other ways. Yeah. I mean, even like as a, a young radical growing up, I remember being very confused at times about the way that sort of like the radical left would engage if Palestine through the lens of international law, like it was always, it seemed like this island that was separate from the way we were engaging with settler yes. colonialism here. And Absolutely. The other problem is, is that this thing of BDS is the first step. That's not accepted by a lot of people, especially by the leadership of mm. a lot of these organizations. BDS is the end, yeah. right? That's an interesting distinction, actually. I haven't thought about it that way. You know, and, and they don't know what to do after BDS. But I think often it is sort of understood as like, this fulfills my obligations of solidarity. Yes. Yes. Which is fine. Which is totally fine. <laughs> but it also doesn't attract some people. Mm -hmm. They find it alienating because it's a language of human rights and human rights are problematic. Have you seen that approach change or in, in the, I think it was five years, right? Since you wrote the article? Yes. And, you know, I don't think it emerged from the article necessarily, but there has been a growing transformation of the way in which we think about Palestine. So the rise of the settler colonial framework that is older, of course, and has a history in the 60s, but was completely abandoned for other kinds of things and its return and what it, what it came with in terms of political, ideological, organizational repertoires from other, other movements has also built steam under a lot of the Palestine solidarity world to rejig a little bit how they talk about Palestine in ways that actually reflect the conditions Palestine is under and what Palestinians are under. And the other transformation has been the growing impact that the role of Palestinians within solidarity formations in the U.S. has been. They've become much more central. They have built their own political capacities. And it's also that there have been several mobilizations, popular and otherwise, in Palestine, led by young people, but calling for Palestinian self-organization, calling for a reclaiming of national institutions that had been sort of decaying since Oslo. I just sort of want to bring us to the present moment. Um, mm -hmm. 
it feels like we're in a moment where there is quite a marked shift happening in, in terms of the political context, where the sort of legal infrastructure that has been dominating the framework and, and the discourse is sort of collapsing onto itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering in this moment, what you see the legacy of the First Intifada being? The legacy of the First Intifada, I think, is fundamentally a legacy of self-determination. It's about Palestinians first coming together, building collectivities at every scale to deliberate amongst themselves what they want their struggle to be, what they want their struggle to look like, and they themselves determining for others what solidarity with them should be. That clarity of what justice should look like and what a struggle for justice can look like emerges out of these kinds of socialities of of that person to follow. That remains the main call, at least for me, that the Intifada makes to the rest of the world. That if you want to be in solidarity with a people, you have to first and foremost listen to those people. If that voice is muddled, if that voice is fragmented, the answer is not to determine for them. The answer is to help them rebuild their national voice and rebuild their national cohesion so that they can then tell you. That's the distinction, I think, that often gets lost. That in the vacuum of what's often called Palestinian fragmentation, you know, there is no national movement, a kind of disregard and disdain for what has been done despite it, what has been done to rebuild that national struggle, that the response should reflect the kind of joyful free-spirited confrontation with power that says, I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, we're in this together. And let's help you think about how you can be strong again. And we'll be strong with you. That's it. That's the best thing that the First Intifada gave as a legacy to Palestinians and to those in solidarity with them. Well, on that note, Mezna, we're going to let you go. And I just wanted to thank you again for coming onto the show. I know that it has been several weeks of emailing back and <laughs> forth, but thank you for taking the time and, and talking to us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was wonderful to think about the first with you. Rebecca Arav. The Queer Mikvah Project is examining the traditionally gender-segregated ritual of mikvah and offering tools to those who feel isolated from our heritage. Because if you're not male or female, if you're transitioning genders, if your sexuality isn't accepted, if your body and spirit don't conform to a binary gender norm, where do you go to practice mikvah? The project includes researching queer mikvah projects that already exist, visioning and creating new experiences of queer mikvah, making a participatory documentary film, facilitating community mikvah experiences, creating resources for queers about mikvah like a zine and art, and the dream is to have an online platform to help people all over connect and come together in person to do queer mikvah. As Jews in Diaspora, we want to share and use our ritual practices for healing the land and waters we are visitors on, for the liberation of all beings. Go to generosity.com and search for Queer Mikvah, M-I-K-V-E-H. Thanks, Trey, for being such a wonderful resource in the radical Jew world. What's next? A bar mitzvah for dogs? It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! 
Shkoyach. Shkoyach. <laughs> All right. So welcome to Shkoyach, the world-renowned segment. Um, I think I want to take executive action here okay. and say that we have a joint Shkoyach to give. Oh, to who? To the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, I'm, I, I'm possibly on board with this. Well, so here's the deal. We haven't really talked about it. Mm-hmm. However, I have now completed Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and, and Marvel's Runaways, and I believe that both David and I will be on board in terms of giving a shkoyach to the MCU. Uh, well, I, I, definitely the, the creative team is responsible for both of those shows. It was great. Also, Black Panther just came out, but neither of us saw it, so yeah, we'll tonight. talk about this after. Yeah, I am so sorry to anyone listening who does not want to hear this at all. If you want to skip the Marvel Cinematic Universe part, fast forward about 60 seconds, and we will continue on regular scheduled programming. Okay, but think about this, right? I'm thinking. Okay, so Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s show is yeah. not the most profitable of enterprises for Disney, but they kept it going for another season. It got really good. And they have this event that happens that's shrouded in mystery, which is the Earth being destroyed. Correct. At the same time, you have Disney, which owns Marvel, acquiring Fox Studios and all the rights to their properties and their franchises, which includes the Fantastic Four and one of their primary villains, Galactus. Yes. So what if Galactus was actually the force that destroyed Earth? <laughs> All right, well... I'm just very excited. Well, this definitely has lasted longer than the 60 seconds. Sorry for people who fast-forwarded. Getting back to brass tacks over here, what's what's your squawk, David? So my squawk for today goes to reporters working for a website called collive.com. Which, upon very quick investigation, is the number one online news source for up-to-the-date information about Chabad Labavitch community in New York City? That is correct. Okay, you're giving a squawk to the writers. Would you like to name them? Unfortunately, I can't, since the report was attributed to COL Live Reporter. But before I tell you about this report, um, I want to tell you about a children's entertainer that I grew up with. Does the first part of his name rhyme with Runkle, and the second part of his name rhyme with Oishi? Yes, uh, Uncle Moishi, a very popular Jewish children's entertainer, uh, who I, I grew up listening to. I had the first two albums, Uncle Moishi and the Mitzvah Men. Volume 1 and Volume 2. Classics. uh, On cassette. And I listen to them all the time. How would you describe the group of fans of Uncle Moishi? Um, Children. (laughs) (laughs) So another part of Uncle Moishi that I think you should know about is that all of Uncle Moishi's albums were produced by a duo named Suki and Ding. They produced a lot of uh, Jewish children's entertainment around this time in the early 90s. It was two people, David Golding and Suki Berry. What I learned from this report, again, on collive.com, was that there's been a parting of ways between Suki and Ding and Moshe Tannenbaum, who've been performing as Uncle Moishi since, uh, I think, 1978. Oh, wow. Okay, so we have Moshe Tannenbaum, who's playing Uncle Moish, and Suki and Ding, who are making all the music. Not the Mitzvah Men. They're the live band. Exactly. Okay. So what has changed since the glory days of the 80s and 90s and now? So what happened is there was some sort of dispute over royalty fees. Classic. And Moshe Tenenbaum walked and severed his ties with Suki and Ding. According to COL Live. Yeah. And he's now partnered with a new duo who call themselves Sonic Duo. And he's created a new Uncle Moishi record that is not with Suki and Ding. Wow. But the problem is that Suki and Ding found this new guy named Yossi Berkton and have anointed him as the new Uncle Moishi. That sounds like trouble in Uncle Moishi paradise. Uh, well said, Sam. It's created a battle of the Uncle Moishis. There's now a new website that Sonic Duo has set up called UncleMoishi.com, which is in direct competition with UncleMoishiWorld.com, which has all of the previous Whoa. 22 albums. Both Uncle Moishis are on tour performing in different locations, trying to get different venues and, and shuls to sign deals with their Uncle Moishi. Wow. Wait, so I'm completely disconnected from this whole affair other than hearing you talk about Uncle Moishi in the past. Mm-hmm. I feel like Uncle Moishi Sr., I think he looks like a cooler Uncle Moishi. So I want to be rooting for the original Uncle Moishi. What's What's holding you back? Nothing? So like I said before, I was a big fan of the tapes, was listening to the songs all the time when I was a kid. And word came down that Uncle Moishi was going to come and play a show in Thornhill, where I was, where, where I lived. And young David was thoroughly excited. Yeah, it was actually going to play at the shul that I went to just down the street from my house. I was super excited. Me and my parents got tickets. We went to the show. I'm there with my tape, I think. I was just so excited. 100%. And a friend of the family who was actually a musician came in and was chatting with my mom. And he was talking about how he was playing that night. And we were a bit confused. 
And then they call out Uncle Moishi, and we're all super excited. And then this guy, who we know, comes out and plays as if he's Uncle Moishi. And that's how you became an anarchist. <laughs> I was so upset. My mom was even more upset. Okay, but wait. So this is the reason why you aren't happy with the original Uncle Moishi? Well, the original Uncle Moishi is making this argument that he's the only true Uncle Moishi. He's the OG, you, if you, you will. You can't have these other people trying to be Uncle Mo- Like, he literally did exactly this. He was hiring out other people for years. Oh, what about like ownership over all those songs? I mean, that's what's being debated right okay. now. Because this entire case is sitting in front of a bait dean in Muncie, New York. Um, wow. And they're going to be the people to settle once and for all who owns the rights to all these songs and who is now the official Uncle Moishi. What's going to happen to the other one? I think that is in the hands of Rabbi Avraham Barach Rosenberg. So anyway, scroll to the anonymous reporters at collive.com for bringing this whole controversy to my attention. That said, Sam. Yes, David. What is your scroll for this week? So unfortunately, I'm going to be bringing down the, the happiness level of the previous two scroll to something much more serious. I think that's uh, it's about time. Yeah. So I want to give my shkoyach for this week to the friends and family of Colton Bushi, mm-hmm. who was a 22-year-old man from the Red Pheasant First Nation. Um, he was murdered by a white settler in September 2016, who I believe last week, depending on when this episode comes out, was found not guilty on all charges of killing Colton. There are a wide range of procedural fairness questions in the case, which are regular for many Indigenous folks in Canada who face the legal system. But more than that, the mobilization that has followed his death has reflected the ongoing violence that Indigenous folks face in Canada. And I just wanted to bring it back to giving a shkoyach to Colton's friends and family and to all the people who are organizing against settler violence in Canada. Yeah, I mean, some some of the procedural fairness questions is that he was facing an all-white jury who, huge shock, just let this guy off the hook for shooting him in the head. Yeah, so again, that might be like the ling- the legal lingo that I'm bringing in here, but I but I think I wanted to differentiate some of the broader structural racism questions from some of the questions about like what witnesses were interviewed and what weren't and what evidence was brought in, like those kind yeah. of questions, which were very sketchy. And many legal commentators have mentioned the fact that those questions were like sketchy at best. Yeah, I mean, like sort of beyond the legal system, all the institutions of Canadian society are actively participating in the ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples here. I mean, it's pretty easy to talk about how the police fit into that. Like in, in this case, the I think it was the same day that Colton was killed, the RCMP showed up at his parents' place, accusing his mother of being drunk, ransacking the place. And then right after the trial, were in complete protection mode for the guy who shot him. Um, so just just this is a really overt example of this happening, but the process that this is a part of is, is ongoing, and, and we're really seeing the frustration and the anger reflected in a lot of the mobilization that's happening right now. And I just want to say for people who are listening, if you can donate to Colton's family, there's a there's a GoFundMe, which we'll post a link to on the page. Yeah. So this happened in Saskatchewan. It's pretty distant from where me and Sam live. But colonial violence is going on all across different territories currently governed by the Canadian state and the United States. Um, So regardless of where you're living, highly encourage you to tap into what's going on locally where you live. Um, If there's not organizing that is clear to you that's happening, try to learn about what's going on there as a first step. Colonial violence isn't something that's distinct to Saskatchewan or Montreal. It's something that's pervasive. It's the soup that we're all living in uh, as uh, settlers in different territories on this continent. So that was your first full episode of the Trafe podcast for the Christian year 2018. Mm-hmm. David, how are you feeling? Uh, about what? About this episode? Yeah. I feel good about it. Like we had been talking about doing an episode about this anniversary for several months. Um, so I feel really good about putting this out and sharing that conversation we had with Mesna. And just to add to that, there are a few more issue-specific episodes that we've been working on that are actually finally coming to fruition. Um, thank you so much for sticking around and still downloading this episode when it came up, even though it's been a few weeks since uh, the last episode. And um, yeah, thank you so much for supporting us online. Why does it sound like I'm Start accepting playing. an Oscar right now? Start playing the music, <laughs> big, <laughs> big giant cane pulling you away. <laughs> Um, 
what, what else do we need to tell people before we uh, we sign off here? I'm sticking on this tip. I'm really grateful that people are listening. Yeah, and, thanks, everybody. And sharing and coming to the workshops that we're doing. And on that note of kindness and giving, um, yeah. Apple Podcast has a rating system. Oh, I thought you were going to give me something. <laughs> like a gift. By the way, David got me a wonderful Protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, book <laughs> for my birthday. By the Will Eisner comic. Not the actual Protocols, but... Have you ever read the protocols? Um, I, I've read like parts of it for an academic project I was doing years ago. Okay, but I uh, hope I hope you like the comic. Thank you. So thanks again for sticking with us. We'll be back next month with a new episode. And again, if you're interested in one of these workshops we're doing, just go to our website, trainpodcast.com. And another huge thanks to Meznakato for taking the time to schedule, reschedule, and reschedule the interview, and for somehow remembering meeting me seven or eight years ago amongst like 500 other people for about 10 seconds. So I am still shocked by that fact. That's a very uh, sharp and generous memory. (laughs) Yeah, that is remarkable. But anyways, thank you again. Trey Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks to Sack Syndrome and SoCalled for the music you heard in the episode. Thanks to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill for creating TreyFpodcast.com, and to Ariana Katz, the Trey staff rabbi. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also send us hate mail, comments, suggestions, the whole gamut to trafepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next month. Yo, what about clown dubstep? <laughs> what does that mean? Like just like all the beats like, of like da 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 with like a heavy dubstep situation. I'm, I'm sure that's a part oh, of juggle wow. culture. I really wanted me to juggle. Sam, I don't know how to tell you this. Yeah. But I've converted you're, to juggaloism. Yeah, I knew you were gonna do that. I mean, yeah. well, I should say that like. I'm not a juggalo, but my parents were juggalos, so I'm like ethnically juggalo. (laughs) Could you imagine how that's going to happen?